with dark forces everywhere and increased paranoia, a group of devout followers find themselves in a losing battle against the black overlords. What started out as a meditation and spiritual group has turned into something full of murder and mayhem. This is part two of the story of Terry Hoffman and her cult, Conscious Development of Mind, Body, and Soul. Well, hello there. I'm Jada Smith. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded really creepy. Thank you. I was trying. Nice. And I'm Alicia Galati, and this is Two Sisters and a Cult. It's a podcast for your earballs. All the balls in your ears. All the balls in your ears. (laughs) You have balls in your ears. Please seek medical advice. This is not a podcast with any medical advice. None. We're just two cult survivors talking about cults. Do you feel like you resonate with that name, cult survivor? Hmm. I never really thought about it in that context, but I mean, at different times, I guess, yes. And then other times I'm like, no, other people who have it worse are that thing. Hmm. I'm not that thing. No, I get that. I feel like it's also that idea of someone else always has it worse. Right. It's so easy to minimize our experience Uh growing up in a cult because there wasn't some massive suicide or big financial scandal that came out. You know, it was just, we left. (laughs) I've never done a past life regression session, but I know you have. What was your experience? I couldn't even tell you like where my head was at in my normal life when I tried it the first time. Okay. Do you remember having a really strange experience, uh, kind of not expecting anything going into it, but generally believing in it okay. at that point. So the, the, the guy that was doing the meditation had you like go through memories and like further back into your own life, this life, and kind of remember things from your childhood where you felt safest or something like that. Like, I don't know, basically ended up in the woods in like some memories of mine interesting then he has you go back and back and back and back and there's this moment where he has you like go back and imagine being in your mother's womb and he basically presents it as it doesn't matter if it's real or if it's just images in your head that you're completely making up there's no difference really okay Pretty much, I, he, he brought me back. I was standing in this wooded meadow, and this person was standing in front of me, and there were two people next to me, and then I got stabbed in the ribs. Oh, And that geez. was pretty much the first one. Like, that was it. I went from, like, being in the woods at, like, 12 years old in this life to my mother's womb, and then being stabbed wearing a white dress in the woods in some other place and it was like a feeling like I felt coldness in my ribs and guts it wasn't like I saw it happen you know it was like I felt these presences by my side wow yeah that's fascinating it was super weird Hmm. did you join a cult after doing it (laughs) I did not (laughs) I mean I hope not (laughs) in talking about Terry Hoffman from last episode and then talking about like 
we're going to move into more about her story and who she is and stuff. But I feel like she used a lot of these tactics. I wouldn't say tactics, but these uh, meditative practices with people to get them to give her things and give her money and leave her things. And I just like, I kind of want to just show like there are innocent ways of practicing meditation Mm -hmm. without joining a goddamn cult. Right. I did it. So in the previous episode, we talked about uh, Terry Hoffman growing up. She was uh, sent to an orphanage, was taught about the Akashic Records by a nun, which we called bullshit on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She uh, started selling her jewelry to people around uh, that were in her meditation group. And she was just at the end of divorcing her husband when we left her. She had also started having her members start attacking the slimy garbons, which is some made-up bullshit, and learning more about the White Brotherhood and the Black overlords. Uh Now we're going to move on to Terry's second husband, Glenn Cooley. He was the young college student who was taking her classes. Her first husband felt super threatened by him. So that kind of led to the end of her first marriage. But she was the one who filed for divorce. And then she moved on to Glenn. So after Terry and Glenn uh, got quickly married in New Mexico, they moved back to Dallas and into a nice home. Glenn helped Terry with the jewelry side of the business, which Remember, that side is called CD Gems. After six years of working alongside Terry, Glenn said he wanted out of the organization. Now, Jada, what usually happens when people want out of an organization? Nothing good. Never good. Oh, man. It's like the start of the end. <laughs> when uh-huh. you say, I want out. Not one to be put out first. Terry was the one who filed for divorce on November 24th, 1976. Glenn then filed a waiver to have the process expedited, and the divorce was finalized just a few months later in January. They continued to work together, and Glenn was awarded with all the proceeds from CD Gems. So here we see they've split, they are divorced, but Glenn, which I don't really understand why he wouldn't just, I don't know, move on with his life and like Mm -hmm. cash out of the business. But he decided he wanted to keep CD Gems and he wanted to run it. And so he got that whole side of the business. And Terry kept her meditation and uh, teaching side. From what I read, they were still amicable during this time. Mm. But as we'll see, Terry doesn't take anything amicably. Mm -hmm. Five days later, after the finalization of their divorce... Glenn was found dead by Terry and two members of Conscious Development. He was in his parents' cabin on Lake Grapevine. He was fully dressed and propped up in the bed. There was a half-empty Coors beer, which I just, I didn't really need to add that in, but it was in the text, (laughs) (laughs) on the dresser and a foam substance around his mouth. The autopsy reported traces of Valium and Librium, a hypnotic and sedative of benzodiazepine, family of drugs. Cause of death was noted as suicide by drug overdose. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds 
awfully suspicious. <laughs> the fact that he was found by Terry and two members of Conscious Development. Yeah. Also, the sedatives, beer. I mean, sure, he could have gotten a little bit carried away, but five days after finalization of the divorce? Okay. Yeah, I don't really understand that. Terry found a note in her safe that she claimed to have been left by Glenn. It read, I, Glenn Cooley, give to Terry Cooley all of my property, both personal and real. This includes two boats, a 1972 Buick Limited, all jewelry and equipment for its making, all furnishings for the house on Dunhaven Road, and all cash. I ask that this last will of mine not be contested by anyone in any way for any reason. Last but not least, I give all my love to my family and friends. I mean, I've never read a will, but... Do they usually say that they ask that the last will of their, like, not be contested? I've never heard such a thing. Like, it usually goes without saying, I feel like. Right. This is my last will and testament. Mm. It's almost overkill. Mm-hmm. Glenn had also signed over full ownership of the house to Terry. His final estate was only valued at $2,565, which was weird since the estimated value of the jewelry business equipment was $85,000. So after everything was said and done, his family only got $2,500, but the jewelry business was thought to have been worth $85,000. Oh. Glenn's mother also thought that Terry's behavior during the funeral was strange. Glenn's mom said she was crying and talking, and then she would stop and look at me to see my reaction. I didn't understand it. Of course, Terry had a rebuttal. For them to blame me for Glenn's death is just totally awful. I did nothing but love that man. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Overkill. <laughs> I tried to help him as long as we were married. I tried to help him after we were divorced. I mean, this is like literally only the beginning of the deaths that are surrounding Terry. Terry found out that Glenn's family wanted to testify against her in an inquest. Terry told Glenn's family that there was every possibility that Glenn's history of drug abuse would be made public. Many of the members of Conscious Development believed that the Black Lords were the ones responsible for Glenn's death. So you'll remember from last episode, we talked about the foam and the weird uh, slime that the slimy garbons leave on their victims. So when they saw the sub foamy substance around his mouth, they thought, oh my goodness, for sure, it's the Black Lords. Uh, that's unfortunate. After Glenn's death, Terry remarried. Ben Johnson was the lucky, lucky man. <laughs> He was another member of the group, and at this time, Terry began taking blood from her members, telling them that they were being poisoned by the Dark Lords. So, not only does she have this small group fighting off black overlords with freaking pens, mm-hmm. looking like goddamn idiots, now she's practicing bloodletting. Like, who died and made you a doctor? Not your husband. Exactly. <laughs> And according to her, the bloodletting was a way of repelling the negative energies along with her super expensive jewelry. Oh, my God. 
people sincerely believed in what Terry was putting forth. They believed that she was a speaker of the truth. And I feel like it's, especially during this time in the 70s, it was so easy for people to get swayed in that, in this idea of just tell me what to do. Mm. And ooh, it's new and it's exotic and she's bringing in meditation and it's not organized religion. And, you know, and they only kind of, they kind of take it so far. But mm. for some people, the bloodletting was just too much. Uh, once they started bloodletting, there were a lot of the members that said, uh, yeah, nope. <laughs> yeah. Not going to do it. You were, you know, it was cool when you told us that we had to buy these expensive jewelries, you know, jewels from you. It was cool when, you know, we were fighting the black overlords and, oh my God, they made your husband die. That was nuts. But now you want to take our blood? Uh, yeah, nope. I'm imagining the uh, Bugs Bunny meme. Where he's just like, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. Me too. This is what Terry Hoffman said about life and death. You will also become consciousness of the continuity of life. Death, then, will not exist in reality, for you will realize that your existence is not dependent upon the mere maintenance of your physical body. The result of noble death is rebirth. I, I kind of wonder if she was taking the um, Heaven's Gate approach. I mean, they were like, you know, we're going to be aliens and we're going to get all this stuff. But I wonder if her approach was like, almost like the Christian approach. When you die, you get X, Y, Z. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like almost all of the cults and all of the religions of the world. This idea that death is not the final thing that, and I mean, I, I don't personally believe that death is final. What's after? I don't know. I can speculate and say things that might make me feel better, but I don't really know. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this idea of saying that you know exactly what's next is just like, it doesn't make any sense least in my brain. I agree. I think they're crazy. Unless you died and came back to life, I don't think that anybody has any business trying to say for sure what's over there. And even then, like, people are like, I went to this place and there were these bright lighted people. Like, they were goddamn aliens, people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but then you have the other people who have a full-on out-of-body experience where they can feel their essence, so to speak, come out of them, their body and they can see their body below and they're just there. All these people have had all these different experiences and you're telling me that in the millions of years that this planet has been around, that just in the last two to 5,000, we've figured out what happens after death? No. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was, uh, I started listening to this podcast. I highly recommend it. It's amazing. It's called Sit for a Spell. Okay. It's so good. They were talking about altars and the history of altars. And I have an altar at my desk at work. They were talking about different ones. And they were talking about Samhain altars around Halloween or St. Hallow's Day. And then they were talking about Yule, Yule time altars and the whole shebang. And I found it really interesting. But they were going back to the history of it. And they were like, then Christianity came in and ruined the party. 
Mm. And I was like, oh, that sounds I like, familiar. I like these girls. I, I like listening <laughs> to them. <laughs> so it's called what now? Sit for a spell? Sit for a spell. Yes, they're okay. on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Cool. So everybody go check them out. In 1978 to 1979, membership started to get smaller. Terry began incorporating massive amounts of pills, which included a lot of uppers and a lot of downers. And she was telling these people that they had to take these pills in order to protect them from the Dark Lords. And of course, she was pocketing the money. So now she's at the point, like Cult Leader 101, she's drugging them, making them stay up at all hours of the night to fight off the Dark Lords. Uh, medieval style of bloodletting so that they're losing their energy. They don't have the energy to, you know, fight against whatever, like have the mental capacity to fight against what she's drilling into them. It's like all of this is Cult 101. Sandy Cleaver, which we remember from the last episode, she was the one who had the daughter, Devereaux, who she was pumping full of pills, and she received full custody of her daughter, or partial custody of her daughter, because her husband was scared that if he took Devereaux away, that Sandy would kill Devereaux. We're in 1979, and Sandy is still the most dedicated VIP cult member. She wrote a will, leaving everything to Terry, and that was in August of 1978. The next February, Sandy asked Devereaux to join her on a trip to Hawaii with her conscious development friends. Devereaux, now 13, was excited to spend time with her mom. So at this point, Devereaux is living at home with her mom. She was younger. She was like maybe six or so when she was getting pumped full of all these pills. Now she's 13. She's seen all these people in and out of her mom's house. Uh, Sandy had given her house to Terry and then began paying rent to live in her own house. All types of craziness. And Deborah was pretty much raised by her nanny. Obviously, as soon as Sandy tells Devereaux, hey, do you want to join me on this trip to Hawaii? Obviously, any 13-year-old who has been neglected and felt rejected by their mom is going to say, uh, hell yeah, I am there. Right. On February 25th, Sandy and Devereaux took a boat out to sea when a wave knocked them overboard. Sandy was rescued, hanging on to some rocks. Devereaux's body was found. Three hours after searching, she had drowned. Chuck, Sandy's ex-husband and Devereaux's father, was informed of his daughter's disappearance before they had found her body and immediately took a flight out to Hawaii. When he got to the hospital where Sandy was being treated, Terry Hoffman was already there. Terry produced Devereaux's will, a 13-year-old's will. I give, devise, and bequeath all of my property, including all titles, rights, and interests of whatever character I may own in and to any property, real, personal, or mixed, whatever is situated, to Terry Johnson, who has been like a second mother to me. She noted, of course, that it should not be contested, just like Terry Hoffman's ex-husband. Mm -hmm. Should not be contested. Texas does not allow a child to write a will. Terry was unable to get any of Devereaux's stuff, thank goodness. Good. And the state of Texas said, absolutely not. 
it is going to be given to the parents. You're insane. Sandy became depressed after the death of her daughter. And toward the end of the year, Sandy took out a life insurance policy on herself for $300,000 and legally signed over all her property to Terry. Terry was busy divorcing her third husband, of course, and had very little time for Sandy's depression. After Terry divorced her third husband, Ben Johnson, she married Don Hoffman, one of her members, who had been married for 22 years to his own wife before joining the group. Okay, so let's talk about Don Hoffman for a second. Don Hoffman was happily married. His wife and him both joined the group of Conscious Development. Mm -hmm. They were there for about, I want to say, five or ten years when Don said, look, wife I've been married to for 22 years, I can't be married to you anymore because I need to marry Terry. The wife did not contest and simply let him get a divorce. I want to tell you about WILD. WILD is a business retreat for female identifying entrepreneurs in creative industries. This retreat is focused on fostering community and connections, business building strategy, and inspiring courageous action. You can join me, Alicia, at WILD in Black Mountain, North Carolina in June. It is only for 35 attendees. My wonderful friend Nicole is hosting the event and I absolutely love kind of what she's just bringing to the table and her experience and this retreat is going to be amazing. If you'd like to know more about WILD or maybe you're going to a different retreat sometime this year and you'd like a free resource on how to make the most of that retreat, well, I have a free download for you that my wonderful friend Nicole gave us to give to you, our audience. To get that free download and to find out more about WILD, you can go to twosisterscult.com slash WILD. See you there. This is the kind of power that Terry had over her people, that they would throw away 22-year relationships. Mm -hmm. Don and his wife had kids together, and he just quit his job, married Terry, and started working full-time for the group. In September of 1981, Sandy persuaded her housekeeper, the woman who had practically raised Devereaux, to join her on a trip to Colorado to visit some land that the group had bought. They planned to build a retreat there for new members. Two days after they left for their trip, Sandy's car was spotted at the bottom of a 450-foot cliff. The road was windy and dangerous, but the police didn't see any skid marks on the road to suggest that Sandy had tried to even brake. Instead, it looked like she had driven straight off the cliff on purpose. Terry showed up two days later to collect both women's bodies and cash in on both of the wills. The housekeeper had left everything to Sandy, and Sandy had left everything to Terry. So she got all of it. Sandy's brother contested the will, stating that Sandy was controlled by Terry's use of hypnosis, Pavlovian conditioning, and psychotherapy. Sandra Cleaver's will was but one of several persons whose wills were changed pursuant to direct influence, suggestion, and psychological control 
of Terry Hoffman. So messed up. This whole episode's a downer. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Terry settled with Sandy's brother and agreed to pay $50,000 immediately following, uh, immediately followed by a cash payment of $62,500. When Sandy's home sold, her brother received 40% and the remainder of Sandy's estate, which was valued at $332,000, would be split 50-50. The entire situation seemed to unsettle Terry, especially these accusations that wills were being changed, and it actually started to bring a spotlight of her in the local newspaper. So she pulled back from the public eye. This didn't stop Terry from continuing her shenanigans, of course, because this is, this is how this woman is. I need to pause here because I feel like we're going to talk about some really terrible cults, and most of them were run by men. And I think it's important to note that there are also cults out there like this one. And that's why I wanted to do Terry Hoffman first, because she psychologically fucked these people. And she fucked a lot of the dudes, <laughs> but <laughs> she was switching husbands left and right. But clearly, like on the on the general side, she was mentally screwing with these people and making them believe all these ridiculous things. They felt they fell prey to her tactics and her strategies. And it's so extremely sad that these people lost their lives because of it. Robin Odstadt was a former writer of the Dallas school curriculum and a school counselor. She met Terry in 1974. At the time, she'd been divorced for two years and was struggling internally. She became involved with conscious development and filled her home with protective crystals that she bought from CD Gems. And of course, a little bit of copper piping that she twisted into a protective shield. She happily took over the role that Sandy left. In the 1980s, Terry claimed to her followers that she had trained dematerialized CIA agents and used her power to protect them. Robin, desperate for a relationship, started dating an invisible CIA agent named George Joffreys. Jesus Christ. She received frequent therapy sessions from Terry and Don and continued to struggle with her depression. Her mental state caused some of the other leaders in conscious development to push Robin away. In April 1987, Robin contacted her ex-husband and told him that she had caught hepatitis from a banana peel. And I wonder who told her this. A freaking banana peel. When she, when she claimed she trained dematerialized CIA agents, she's talking about like, like they died, right? Like they passed over and they were still working from the other side kind of thing. I'm not exactly sure. So from what I understood, it was these covert op spiritual CIA agents. Uh, so not necessarily that they had died and were on the other side. It was more about they're on the spiritual realm. You know, friends in high places and such. Oh, my God. So, of course, Robin was desperate for love. She wanted to be with someone. And so she started dating one of these imaginary CIA agents. Robin's ex-husband set up a doctor's appointment for her. And she went. On her way home from the doctor, she visited Terry. 
No one's sure exactly how that conversation went. But on Robin's way home, she stopped at a store and bought a revolver, then went home and shot herself in the head. Jesus. Her suicide note said, I am apologizing to Terry 3,000 times a week on all levels of my being for highly offensive, rude, vulgar comments made to her last week. I love her dearly and beg her forgiveness someday. This is, this is hard. In her will, she left all her land and belongings to Terry. If her son wanted the leftovers, he could have them. Robin's blood tests showed that she was not sick at all. Mary Levinson struggled with anxiety and depression while she was in college and attempted to take her life. She was hospitalized and then released to visiting therapists. She joined the Chicago group of conscious development and started having weekly calls with Terry. So this is where Terry's reach starts to spread. Not only is she, does she have that fan base of VIP leaders in her inner circle, in Dallas, but now she's starting to extend her reach and sell her, you know, teachings on like through the mail. And there is a Chicago chapter or group of conscious development. So Mary Levinson lives in college, lives in Chicago, and she joined their group and got connected with Terry. And of course, is paying for weekly calls specifically with Terry. Mm. After joining conscious development. Mary left her husband and found a new boyfriend, Dr. Robert Keyes, a fellow member of the group. When her mom came to visit her, she made her wait while she finished the call with Terry, then asked her parents for a loan so she could move to Dallas. They obviously said no. In 1987, she removed her brother as beneficiary and made her new husband the one to get all of her things. Her relationship with her parents became very strained. Mary started selling off all of her belongings, including family heirlooms. She then withdrew the entire divorce settlement of $125,000. On November 30th, 1987, police responded to a double-bolted hotel room. When they broke in, they found Mary lying dead on the floor, fully clothed. On the nightstand, there were over a hundred pills, most of which were Benadryl. They also found her driver's license, $118,000, a cut visa card, and a tape recording. Her autopsy noted that she had a small puncture wound at her wrist and had overdosed on sleeping pills. On the tape recording, she said, I want you to understand that I am fully rational and I have come to this decision after a long time of thinking. I am actually looking forward to it. Mary's lawyer said that Mary had given all of her money to a nonprofit organization, which wouldn't be named. Mary's ex-husband said that her psychiatrist had told him that he had not seen Mary for the four months leading up to her death, and he was worried about Terry's influence. Charles Southern Jr. was an English professor and assistant chairman of a local community college in Chicago. He studied different Eastern and African religions. He was another Chicago member, but regularly visited Terry in Dallas. He even joined Terry's inner circle of teachers in battling the Dark Lords. In 1987, his family found him walking the streets and mumbling to himself. This is a professor, like highly esteemed 
intelligent person and he's wandering the streets, mumbling. Nobody could find him. They didn't know where he was. And they find him on the streets mumbling to himself. They took him to the hospital. While there, his mother visited him every day. There were also two members of conscious development that visited him. When they would show up, he would ask his mother to leave. After being released from the hospital, he told his parents he had been disillusioned by Terry's teaching, but wanted to stay a part of the group. At the end of the year, he booked a trip to India. And being an avid traveler, this didn't raise any red flags. Two weeks later, worried about their son's lack of communication, they drove to his home. Charles wasn't there, but his dress hat and coat were folded on top of an African ceremonial stool. This was a Nigerian tribal symbol for death. They found his passport without any Indian stamps and a small vial of a drug called Curare. It was used in anesthesia and caused total paralysis. They also found a barely legible scribbled note which read, I came under a bad influence and tried to battle it myself. Charles has never been found, and he named Terry the executor of his estate. Man, this stuff is heavy. No, It no. is. It's so heavy. <laughs> We're almost done. I didn't know. I didn't realize. I, I didn't know that story about that specific guy. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Like, he was a professor. That would make a fantastic movie. Yeah. As sad as that is, it, it would. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine being, like, so highly intelligent and feeling so i mean he must have felt like he was going absolutely crazy like is she right is she not right am i crazy yeah i hope he made it out of there i don't know i'm kind of thinking he didn't because he didn't like he's never been found no one knows where he is or what happened and she does have a pretty solid track record of death and destruction oh yeah Don and Alice Hoffman, which you'll remember Don from before. He was uh, Terry's third husband. No, fourth mm-hmm. husband. Fourth husband. Don and his previous wife, Alice, joined Conscious Development in 1974 after their three-year-old daughter drowned in their backyard swimming pool. Mm. They had both been huge members in the Ascension Lutheran Church, but didn't find solace in conventional religion after their loss. But... In April 1980, even after having two surviving children, they ended their 22-year marriage. Terry had divorced her third husband, Ben Johnson, a month earlier, and then married Don just one day after his divorce was final. He quit his engineering job and devoted himself to conscious development. After years of keeping conscious development going, Don came to believe that he had become extremely sick with cancer. Terry claimed that she did not know about her husband's illness or the doctors that he was seeing. On September 17, 1988, Don's body was found by a maid in a Marriott hotel room. He had died of a lethal concoction of drugs, including Benadryl and ecstasy. He had left three video messages telling his family, including two kids from his previous marriage, that he had inoperable cancer and that he didn't want to go through chemotherapy. He told them not to grieve for him at all, and that death is just a transition from one life to another life. Don's autopsy report showed that Don had no sign of cancer. 
His kids confronted Terry and asked why he would think that he had cancer if that wasn't true. She said, what Don had was definitely cancer. He said the Black Lords were trying to create an illusion so that the medical examiner wouldn't find any cancer. So they would hurt all of us more. Terry filed Don's will in April the next year. Of course, he had left everything to her. Don's children filed a case against Terry, claiming that she had caused Don to kill himself and contested the will. Their attorney searched Terry's trash and found a note that read, Here is your bulk order plus the samples. Number one is a new formula that is a bit more complicated to make and will cost 35 cents more per capsule. It should have more amphetamines and a balancer to neutralize bad effects. Number two is the basic E formula without the last step performed in purification to remove all amphetamines. Oh my God. It was believed that these were the capsules that many of the followers were taking. You know, the ones she trucked in from Mexico. Oh my God. Yep. She actually batshit. Oh yeah. yeah. She is completely batshit crazy. <sighs> okay, so we're on to like the last death that happened <laughs> because of Terry Hoffman. So the end is in sight. Okay. In the beginning of episode one, we read about the finding of David and Glenda Goodman's bodies. Well, this is their story and how they came to be. David Goodman married Peggy, his high school sweetheart. They had a son just a few months later and he dropped out of school. When he was able to save up enough money, he went back to school and received an MBA from Berkeley and a PhD from Yale. Like, straight up working father. <laughs> uh -huh. Commendable. Where he was in college, his wife gets pregnant. He says, you know what? I need to make money for us. He drops out, makes money. Once he has saved up enough, he gets, after having already dropped out of college, goes back to school for an MBA from Berkeley and a PhD at Yale. Fucking smart. Uh -huh. Well, suddenly on their 10th anniversary, Peggy left David, taking their now two sons. He started working as a professor at a local community college. The struggle of the breakup of his marriage caused David to look deeper into his spiritual life. Bruce Buchanan, a fellow Berkeley student who was friends with David while they both worked toward their graduate degrees, came to think of David as a seeker. He said he would go to various discussion groups the way you or I might go to the movies. Buchanan said that when Peggy decided to end the marriage, it destroyed David. He was left with the house and the job, but no wife and kids. He went through pain. This didn't affect David's work, though. He was published regularly in the best scholarly journals, and in 1973, just three years on faculty at Edwin L. Cox School of Business, he was promoted to associate professor and granted tenure. 1973 was also the year that David Goodman found Terry. He told his dad, I don't know how I could have made it if it weren't for Terry. She reads minds. She can see people's auras. Have you ever had your aura? Why do you have to pick that one? The auras? Like, there were probably so many people reading freaking auras back then, getting into it, and he just had to pick Terry freaking Hoffman, man. Yeah. Have you ever, like, have that uh, photo aura done? No, no, I have not. Have you? No, but I want to. <laughs> Has anybody ever told you, like... 
you're, you are a certain color or you give off a certain energy? When I met my energy coach in real life for the first time, because all of her stuff is virtual, um, and I met her at a conference, she said uh, when she met me in, in person, oh my gosh, Alicia, you are glowing. And I was just like, okay. But I wasn't like, I hadn't hired her at that point. She was just like, you know, Irina, the yoga instructor. I didn't really know her um, on the level that I know her now. Um, and kind of okay. like what she offers. And pretty much she, like, she was just, like, I just remember her being like, you have the brightest smile, which I'm just like, whatever. Okay. <laughs> and she was like, oh my God, you're glowing. And I was just like, I mean, I'm like four months postpartum. So I don't really know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. But yeah, that's that's about it. I don't think I've ever um, had anybody tell me like, you are, you have a blue aura or I don't know. What about you? I've never had anybody like just randomly come up to me. You know, some people will say they have that experience. Like, oh my God, this lady just came up to me in the store and was like, you're yellow. Wow. I mean, I don't <laughs> no, know how I would never. feel about that anyway. <laughs> Very true. Really, Very bitch, why? Get out of here. <laughs> I'm yellow. Okay, you're blue. <laughs> you're it. Bye. You're white. Oh god, no way. <laughs> well, on that note, I I don't like claim to see people's auras, but I definitely do associate certain colors with certain people and like the vibes that they give off. So I don't know if that's a similar thing or if that's just my own weird little brain. Why don't you want to claim it? Because, like, first of all, it sounds really woo woo. I mean, I respect people who do claim it. I just don't feel comfortable seeing myself in a group with those people. Hmm. Okay, so I have lots of questions around this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's almost like, so I don't really care for Dax Shepard's podcast. Okay, I haven't listened to it. That's sad. I like him. I know. I Okay, I... I do like him, but I'm just not interested in celebrities to the point where I really give a shit. Yeah. That's yeah, it. Yeah, that's fair. But he has, so his assistant, Monica, is always on the podcast with him when he's talking to people. She has new episodes, her and her gay friend, Jess, I think is his name. It's every Wednesday, new episodes drop, and it's called Monica and Jess Love Boys. Jess is gay, obviously. And he has this, like, in the beginning, he talks about how there are certain gay men who are like, I mean, I'm gay, but I'm not, like, flamboyant gay. It's like a whole division in the gay community. There is, sure. And so Monica was like, well, why? Like, what's what's the big deal? Like, it doesn't have to be, like, a label of, like, I'm gay, but I'm not like that person. You know, so I'm, I want to kind of challenge you in the same sense of, like, you can be you and still have a semi-association to a group of people, but not be woo, you know? Yeah, yeah, I get that. Mm. Like, my energy coach considers herself... Christian. She goes to church on Sundays. She like has like a local church that she's, you know, is, I think she like goes to a Protestant church or whatever, but that's how she, like, she's into angels and all that stuff. But like, I still go to her for spiritual help, even though I, like, I don't take her, like whenever I'm learning from her, 
if she says angels in my mind, I replace it with guides because that's how that's the lens that I see things through, but I don't discount Mm -hmm. her just because she has a more Protestant background. I can actually relate to her more because of the things she says. I understand what she's saying, Mm -hmm. you know, so don't discount Mm. it. (laughs) You're fucking awesome. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. <laughs> yes, yes. So, like, what's a time where you've um, felt somebody, like, seen somebody's aura and been like, ooh, wow. Where you, like, really got a, a visual of it. Uh, there was this one time I was walking through the city, which is not, like, you know, your favorite place to be in the first place, especially not around here, but. Walking through the city and this guy pulls up as I'm waiting for the crosswalk light to turn. And he's like, hey, what you doing tonight? Need a ride? You know, just fucking talking out of his ass. So pretty much the way that my dad. The way that your dad picked up your mom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Essentially just that. Oh, God. (laughs) He felt like. This is why I'm not sure whether it's just an association thing, like a personal association thing, because he felt to me like slimy and green and full of this disgusting goo. And I just kept walking like, no, ew, there's nothing good in that. Now I'm going to look up slimy green aura. (laughs) (laughs) So I was listening to, I'm just talking about Sit for a Spell podcast like crazy today. Um, I was listening to their podcast and they had an episode on auras and I thought it was really cool. And they actually give you tips at the end on how you can train your ability to see auras. And I thought that was really cool. That is really cool. But they said that there's no um, like quote unquote bad auras. Even black is just like, you're feeling anxiety, you're having stress, recognize it, move on kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, what about like sociopaths and psychopaths? They can't have like squeaky clean auras, right? Right. So they mentioned that in the episode, they were like, I wonder if you took like a snapshot of a psychopath or a sociopath and kind of what, like none of them have probably ever gone to get their aura read because they probably don't give a shit. But mm. That's how you know you're not a sociopath, is you want your aura red. <laughs> Second Nature is a premium service solving a very unpremium problem. Regular air filter replacement. Even that sentence alone sounds a little dull, but trust us, it's a problem worth solving. Most people don't recognize they're supposed to change their filters every couple of months, and the ones that do barely have time to remember it. That's where Second Nature comes in. I recently subscribed to Second Nature when we bought our house, and I could not believe the amazing quality and options that are available for air filters for your home. I love the easy set it and forget it. I get a monthly filter because my son and I have really bad allergies. Second Nature made it so easy. And using our promo, you can get a month for free. We definitely recommend that you try it out and stick with them. We've been with them for almost two years now and we absolutely love them. You can go to twosisterscult.com slash second nature. With a Second Nature subscription, you'll never forget your filters again. I met this lady who I was convinced after the fact, 
like after I'd gotten to know her and thought she was a fantastic human and then realized that she was in fact not a fantastic human and she was actually kind of a horrible person, I realized that the energy that had felt sort of like magnetic and fun about her was actually this sort of like a star that ate itself kind of you know like like the opposite of something giving off energy where it's this big black pit sucking it in like a a black hole yeah Mm. yeah so apparently a dark green aura signifies deep-rooted jealousy that is likely formed over time and become a toxic source of negative energy. These individuals are typically spiteful and unable to take criticism. They will feed off their own negative emotions in a vicious cycle, which is one of the main reasons they struggle to escape this shade. Hmm. And I'm getting this from guardianangelreading.com. Very interesting stuff. not, that does have some merit because... Generally, insecure people do tend to catcall, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, it's, yep, pretty much. <laughs> so Terry could see people's auras, which we don't believe. But nope. <laughs> if you could see people's auras, write into us. We want to hear your story. Or if you've had your aura read, we want to know. We'd love to hear your story. David remarried in 1977 to a 23-year-old music student. Terry conducted the ceremony and had encouraged the union, but they separated less than two years later. Half a year after that divorce, David remarried for a third time. The 39-year-old professor's bride was a 24-year-old former student. How do you feel about that? 39? Not great. We talked about a little bit of this last week. Definitely doesn't make me happy. I'm... I've just come out of being in my 24th year myself and I I can't, I mean, I understand the attraction to older people, especially when you think you're all like grown and your people your own age don't understand you. Yeah. And especially in something like a cult where that's the only person who understands you, but still creepy. Yeah. Still creepy. While I get what's going through her head, in a sense, I don't appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I understand, <laughs> but I do not appreciate this. <laughs> oh, man. Terry pronounced them soulmates, just like the first one. First two. <laughs> Destined for many lives together and presided over the wedding ceremony, but the marriage lasted only three years. David began to feel less fulfilled in his work and was not putting effort Forth the way that he had before. He took long breaks at lunch and wasn't in his office during scheduled office hours. Instead of focusing back into academics, David created a complex computer-tested formula for picking stocks. It gave him a huge return on his investment. He wrote up an article about it and decided to launch his own stock business, completely leaving academia. I mean, like, more power to you if you... Find something you love and you're making a ton of money and you can help other people make a ton of money and you enjoy doing that, then Yay. I don't see anything like super wrong with it. David met Glenda at one of Terry's sessions and started dating her in the summer of 1983. The next summer, they were married and Terry per- performed the ceremony. Glenda had three children. Her son already lived with his father, but the two daughters lived with Glenda. David thought that the girls 
were a distraction. He said it was crucial that he and Glenda focus exclusively on one another, their work, and spiritual development. She sent their daughters to their father after she married David. Six years later, David and Glenda were found dead in their homes from the double suicide. Terry filed bankruptcy protection on October 22nd, 1991, stating that all the publicity and lawsuits had ruined her business. Are you sure it wasn't all the people dying, Terry? She secretly had several bank accounts, expensive artwork, and property that she was hiding. The only thing that the FBI could get on Terry, even after all of these suicides, was a bankruptcy fraud. She was convicted in 1994 and sentenced to 16 months, which she only served seven. After her time in prison, Terry pulled back from her business. She moved on to a new business of taking pictures of clouds and claiming that they were not merely clouds, but various spiritual beings that have revealed themselves to her. You can find all her made-up accolades and multi-volume study courses on her website, heavenandearthphotography.com. She remarried for the fifth and final time to Roger Keenly. In 2006, Terry launched a book with Mike Ryan, one of her followers, called The Colors of Money, Finding Your Money Force. And you can buy it on Amazon for $33.32 if you want. I don't personally recommend it. No, thanks. I mean, one, I'm not going to spend $33 on a book. I mean, God damn it. Like, seriously. By a dead lady who started a cult. <laughs> one of the Amazon refuse, which, okay. Now we're getting into the fun stuff. People died. It's terrible. But there's nothing better than Amazon reviews. I'm excited about these. These are great. <laughs> one star. Do your homework on author first. Be sure to Google Terry Keenly before you spend any money on this. In no way was this woman one of the, quote, 20th century's greatest minds. Unless, <laughs> of course, it's one of those vanity books you pay to be featured in, which is the case here. Terry Keenly, a.k.a. Terry Hoffman, died in 2015, and her legacy is easy to discover all over the internet. She made numerous claims about competence in all kinds of fields in which she has no skills, training, or experience. She never even completed high school. Lovely point. The only thing she knew about the color of money was how to wrestle it away from vulnerable people who thought they were seeking a higher truth. Many of them ended up dead. Move on, folks. There's nothing to see here. <laughs> Very good. Very well put. <laughs> yes. Next review. One star. This is a noteworthy book insofar as it was co-authored by an alleged murderer. <laughs> Google Terry Hoffman and marvel at how this woman isn't currently incarcerated in a Texas prison. And then there's one five-star review. It says, interesting and thought-provoking. This is a great book. It covers many of our fears and attitudes about money on a spiritual level. I'm still picking it up from time to time and learning new things. It also has some interesting history lessons on money and is well-researched. Like the reviewer above said, there is bad press on Terry on the internet. I'm not sure why that is, because she is mentioned in at least two books as one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. 
this book is not for everyone. And it's not as accessible as some other books about the same subject. But it is very powerful and will get you thinking. There was a comment to this review. I will read it now. <laughs> Yay. Tauntaun replied, you're not sure why there is bad press on her? Maybe because she told people they had cancer and to write a will, leaving her everything, and then commit suicide. When autopsies were done, the people did not have cancer. That's just one of the reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tauntaun. Oh, right? Doing God's work out here. Right. Harry <laughs> <laughs> Lee Benson Wilder Cooley Johnson Hoffman. Only reason I'm judging her for her multiple marriages is because she clearly had a hand in the deaths of some of her spouses. At least most of them. Terry died on October 31st, 2015. So fitting. Halloween. I love that. I'm like, it's amazing. How? I'm jealous. Right. How did she manage it? <laughs> How Talking. did she figure that out? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was not intentional. She probably thought it was Satan's day. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Terry's Dallas obituary, mm, obituary read, she gave us the opportunity to experience many different vibratory frequencies so that the next time we are exposed to a being, situation, or an energy, we can now attune to it and recognize it or them because she presented those new vibratory frequencies to us. God, that's a long sentence. Yeah. That has been truly a gift from God. So our leader has left us on the physio-astral, but nevertheless still exists on all other levels. Thank you for all your love, tutelage, and care until we meet again. One federal law enforcement officer who wanted to nail Terry for these crimes said, Terry Hoffman was probably the most successful, unprosecuted serial killer for profit in the history of Texas. And that's Terry Hoffman. Yep. I, I didn't want to end on her happy, oh, she did so much for us obituary because she was like, I know it's alleged. I know she was never convicted of these crimes, but she literally was a serial killer for profit. Mm -hmm. She coerced these people into thinking that that was the only way, that that was the way to find peace and happiness. And it is absolutely devastating. The lives of the people that were their families that are left behind with absolutely nothing. God, oh man, this was a doozy of an episode. Yeah. I am sorry in advance, uh, in not advance. <laughs> I'm <Retrospect>. sorry. <laughs> Retrospect. This was bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. It was bad, but it was fun. I mean, it's informative, you know? Yeah. You gotta know so you know who to look for. Yeah. Oh, man. Let's end on a high note with the coronavirus lock-in and... And everything else. Um. So something funny happened last night with Jude. He's a yapper. He does not stop talking like ever. And it's, I mean, it's a five-year-old thing, but dear God, sometimes I'm like, you <laughs> stop talking, please. <laughs> but he's been doing a lot of talking lately. And last night he was brushing his teeth, getting ready for bed. And he goes, you know what, mom? I would like to try raw wildebeest tomorrow. And I looked at him and I said, Jude, 
we don't eat raw meat. It's not good for you if you eat meat raw. He goes, I know, I know. I just want to pretend. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, we can do that. And so tonight we had pretend raw wildebeest tacos. He loved it. Very it was nice. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's, I mean, that's a great idea. That's just, just pretend to give it. Yeah. All I ask is you pretend to give it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't ask for much. <laughs> just some pretending. I'm I'm grateful for quarantine, to be honest. I mean, it's nice. Yeah. It's super nice to have like a I don't know, a little space. Everything is always so fast-paced and like do this, get this done. No excuses, be on your shit or else. Yeah. But this is like a nice little breather, even if it is unfortunate that we're having it because some people are having trouble breathing. Yeah. It's a nice breather. No, that's great. I think it's it's important to have that perspective, too. I mean, me and you are introverts, so we're like, oh, stay home and do nothing. Been doing that for weeks. Oh, no, <laughs> please. Don't threaten me. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, for everybody else, like it is a, almost like a reminder to just pause, reset life, you know, collect the things that are close to you, the people that are close to you, love on them and just enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. I think it's a perfect time to start our cult, by the way. I'm just saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Join our cult. Join our Join cult. <laughs> We're not going to, we're not going to start a cult. It's not happening yet. (laughs) You don't have to join our cult, but you can always join our Patreon that's launching in May. (laughs) Do it. If you want to send us your stories, were you in a cult? You have a favorite cult, any of that stuff. We love hearing your stories. It could just be like something funny that happened to you or something scary or creepy or mystical. Uh, you can send us your stories at two sisters cult at gmail.com. We'll be launching our Patreon in May. So if you would like to donate to the show, you can do that there and we'll have more details soon. Yes, it's going to be great. And our show will always be free, uh, but that's going to be an extra way that we can upgrade our equipment and really be able to provide you guys with more episodes so definitely gonna check that out in may uh we have some pretty awesome merch available in our shop you can pick from decal stickers t-shirts and other fun stuff if you click shop in the menu at two sisters and the best way for you to help us out on the show is to like review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts also be sure to tell a friend who you think would like us tell 10 friends <laughs> Tell them all. All your friends. I mean, if you're introverts like (laughs) us, you probably have like three friends. So tell all three of your friends. That's a lot. That's too many. I know, right? (laughs) Many friends. (laughs) You can find us on all the social medias, including Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and all the things at Two Sisters Cult. Come hang out with us. We will catch you on the flip side. Don't join that cult. (laughs)